welcome back to the Ramble Room. I'm Ken, and I'm here with Diane, and we have an old friend with us. Uh, I guess maybe better said a, a fellow who's been a friend for a long time. I can take old. So <laughs> his name is Sam Morton. He's an author, and we'll get into that. But we first met Sam would have been 1982. 82. 1982. What is that, 40 years ago? 81. I think it was 81 it? to 82. Yeah, because I worked the last year I worked at Spiro's, the year I graduated. Yeah, it, was, well, the, it well, was the summer of 82 because we had our first anniversary up there. We had a little party at Christmas. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you wanted to argue about it because we, yeah, we got married in 81. It's like I said, 82. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it does not feel like 40 years, and yet, it, and Diane said she saw, we worked up there for Archie and Alice McCarty, and we won't spend a whole lot of time talking about old people that we used to know. But Diane was uh, pole watching in story and alice was one of the people that came in to vote diane couldn't speak to her because that's against the rules but i guess she's aged a little in the last 40 years unlike us we all look exactly the same oh alice looks pretty good and you know back to the alderson family what a great family they are she's she's getting up there though yeah well yeah. so are we beats the alternative <laughs> <That's> <laughs> to, to they, a point that's what they say <laughs> Anyway, Sam, uh, my audience has no idea who you are, so just give us a quick couple minutes on who Sam Morton is. Well, I got dropped off in the Bighorn Mountains when I was 10 years old by my parents that had already raised a big family, and they were wanting relief. <laughs> and my mother had come out here in the 19, late 20s, early 30s and was in, stayed at a, a dude ranch in Story that was... It was called the TAT, and, and now it was called the Rafter Y, and now it's been bought by some people who've really fixed it up and built a big lodge in Story. So I, that's my relationship with this community. And then I worked at Teepee Lodge as a little kid and just kept coming back and forth with a few breaks over the years. So I first came out to this area in 67, and it was just the greatest migration in the world, like North Carolina in the winter and Sheridan in the summer. I spent two winners out here which you know kind of a slow learner and then I got hired to go to Florida I was a horse trainer worked at Spiro with these guys um which was just a magical place back then and uh took pack trips back in the wilderness area and and nothing's changed Spiro's great by the way now I spent the night up there last fall as just as a guest food is fabulous um the Sessions family who owned the funeral homes here are the are part owners with some other people, um, and so I I got hired to go to Florida to be a which wasn't a hard I was working in Wyarno was breaking horses and cowboying for the Burgess Henry Burgess and and his son Sheridan which was a, just a wonderful job, and it was November and I got hired to go to Florida, and it wasn't a hard decision as a twenty four year old twenty five year old. And this lady came up in a rent a Cadillac and spilled all our cattle, got out in the mink stole and said, would you like to go to Florida and train horses for us down there? And I thought, well, it was already snowing. and we'd been <laughs> <laughs> So I, I've been going back and forth between there and through a kind of a Forrest Gump kind of deal, I ended up in polo and came back here and ran the polo club here. And, and then uh, I was, the vets hired me at the time to be a horse dentist 
because they didn't want to do it. And and being a cowboy, you kind of knew a little bit about shoeing, a little bit about teeth. And because I worked at a this big polo club called Palm Beach Polo, I saw everybody every day because they had to call me. So I immediately got like a thousand clients in the winter. That's a uh, lot of teeth. It was a lot of teeth, and I already had a full-time job, so I got a lot of experience, and then the vets hired me to work for them. And so that's pretty much uh, – I've always been interested in history, and I started writing articles in a polo magazine, which were kind of like dysfunctional National Lampoon takes on <laughs> polo, and I had enough friends that I could kind of make fun of them without offending anybody. And I... <clears throat> So – I got approached by a gentleman here to preserve the history of this community, and he said, I want to get it before these people pass away. And it was Bee Buff that lived in, in Bighorn. Her family came out in the turn of the century and were sort of amazing people that preserved. They were the first people to bring the, the natives into the community, the chiefs that were still alive from the three predominant tribes, the, the Sioux and the Cheyenne and the Crow, and they embraced them supported them, built dental clinics on their reservations, just these great New York people that had a lot of money that wanted to embrace the cowboy culture. And so this man wanted me to get all that history and put it in a book, and he just turned me loose. No parameters, no deadline, and that was where the rivers run north, and that's done really well here. Um, through no, I, The story told itself, and I have met a lot of fun people, so that's kind of my story. A pretty special book to this to this area being the the horse capital of probably the world, really. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't get called that, but there there isn't there aren't horses anywhere that don't have some sort of a link to what's going on here, as I understand it. Yeah, and I've really tried to promote that, and 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 when I went to work down there, I would try and bring buyers up here, and I did. But even before that, if you, if you read the book, you'll get an idea of how. But uh, two years ago, I counted, I wrote down names of all the people that uh, played polo here that summer. And because uh, Ski Johnston is, is a very smart manager, he kind of revolutionized Coca-Cola bottling. He just knows how to manage things. He built the most fabulous ranch, put it together out there in Bighorn. And then built this polo club because his son did it, who was uh, who got killed tragically in a polo wreck. But before he did, they built this polo club with world-class polo because they didn't want to go to Santa Barbara in the summer. They like Wyoming. And then all these other people started joining the Bighorn Club because these big people were here, and it just went crazy. So there's 200 polo clubs in the United States, from New York to California to Florida. And and Bighorn, Wyoming has the most polo players of anywhere in the world in the summer, which is unbelievable. Right. Well, when I counted 158 at the Bighorn Club. I mean, that's beginners, people that are in the clinic, everybody. But I wrote their names down just because I, you know, nothing lasts forever. And uh, he bought the equestrian center to keep it from being developed because it was for sale and, and anybody could buy it. And so he saw it that, and he's put most of the face of the mountain in nature conservancy so nobody can build on it. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to look like Salt Lake City or Boise where you're looking at a housing complex on the face of the mountain. And luckily, people that are con conservationists like Forrest Mars and, and Ski Johnston bought that. Mm -hmm. 
And he made an interesting comment, which I think should be said. Is he said, you know, I can leave my ranch in Wyoming and drive to Sheridan, and I don't see one gum wrapper, one beer can, one. He said, people here take pride in their stuff, and they they don't do that. And he goes, you know, in, in other places, you go down Monday morning, and both sides of the road's full of trash. And I hope the way this community's expanding, that, that, that people embrace that local culture part it'd be, of it. It'd be nice if they didn't forget what attracted them to the area in the first place. Right. And and also, you know, a lot of these people are just running from something, mm-hmm. which we don't think about. That they're, They haven't even looked up yet. They just bought a place away from where they're at. And it's, it's not unique to Sheridan. It's because I travel. Mm-hmm. Every nice town is being, that's happening all over the world. But it, it helps that Wyoming is a place that is still relatively free. Yes, and and I always say about Wyoming, Wyoming's testimony to what people are capable of if you give them enough space. Yeah. And people tend to be a certain way in a good way and open-minded and think for themselves and take a person for what he is, not not who he's supposed to be, but what he does. And that, it's, it's a nice thing, and it's very unique. And this town is still, which is cool, a local culture that, you know, you're still predominantly people that grew up and went to high school here, have a history here, some kind of, and that's, that's kind of neat. Talk a little bit about polo again in that this isn't just an American thing. This is, we have people from all over Europe that oh, come yeah. here and play. Um, I remember that the Queen of England was here back in the 80s. Um, Terrible polo player, I might add. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Can you see her on a polo pony? You know, they say when she came here, I don't, I wasn't, you know, I was around, but my dad said, you know, people live their whole lives in England just to look at the Queen once, to get a glimpse of yeah. her. And my niece lived in Bighorn, and she went to Bighorn. She was, like, in third grade. And I was joking around. I'm like, hey, I said, Mallory, did you see the queen when she was here? And she goes, oh, yeah. yeah. I said, well, where did you see her? And she goes, in the mercantile yeah. in Bighorn. Yeah. She was in there shopping. <laughs> I missed her that day. At, at that point, I was working at Park Reservoir, which is right there. Yeah, I think we were at exactly. Sparrow then, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was that. That was the same year because several years before I worked at Spiro. I worked for my granddad at Park Reservoir. Okay. And I spent a lot of time over there with Archie and Ellis. Right. So I I couldn't tell you what year it, it wasn't the year that we were at, that we were all at Spiro because I was hearing about how yeah, the queen was here before. Okay. Were you guys working on the dam? Were they rebuilding the dam then or were you just up? <clears throat> I was done by then. Okay. But I worked on the old one before and we could tell a lot of stories about that perhaps we should sometime. Um I, I wanted to know, how did you get into writing? You were always a bit of a storyteller. I remember the dudes gathering around and, and plying you and others with beverages, uh, trying to get a story out of you. Well, um, the way I got back to writing, and I, I so wish my dad had lived long enough to see that book come out because he forced me to go back to school. 
And I said, Dad, it's expensive. You don't want, I got a job, you know. And, of course, he, you know, I thought I had the best job of the world taking pack trips. And he, you know. <laughs> he had a good one. He's a, <laughs> smarter than I am. And he's like, you know, you're basically a glorified janitor. Mm-hmm. And you need to get at least where you can. And I learned to write at a, at a school in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. I went back to school and graduated. And they made you write. So. Somebody wrote an article in Florida when I went to a little town that was 1,200 people with a friend of mine, Martin, when we went down to train horses, and they dredged it out of a swamp. And this guy had a company in Chicago, and he was a big polo enthusiast. He said, I'm going to build the world's biggest polo club here. And he called it Palm Beach Polo. Well, he ain't any closer to Palm Beach than we are to Ranchester. (laughs) But it worked because it's doable. So if, if, if a wife... If a husband tells her wife, you know, we're talking big money here. I'm going to go to Africa and go big game hunting this winter for four months. She'll say, you're going to do it on half because I'm leaving. I ain't going to Africa. <laughs> but if he says, I'm going to Palm Beach and play polo, and we saw that town just go from 1,200 people the size of Buffalo to 70,000. Do they resent you now? Uh, the locals. For different reasons. <laughs> Somehow I can understand. <laughs> <laughs> Not for that. <laughs> but they, yeah, there's. Spe- but anyway, the way I got hired is the locals, like, you know, these huge polo people come in and horses. And this editor of this newspaper, this guy had written, like, in the, what's, what's our local newspaper, the Country Bounty? Well, it, technically it's the Sheridan Press, but it's. But the, the, the free, the, oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. their free local newspaper was called the uh, Town Crier. So this guy wrote an article on what trash the horse people were and how disrespectful were. And they're all drug addicts and whatever. And, they, and she said, if we paid you 50 bucks, would you write a rebuttal? And that 50 bucks. <laughs> that's when I, if I had five, <laughs> that's when I'm walking around the grocery store with a tall beer and a TV dinner. <laughs> and I remember a friend of mine looked and said, that's just sad. And I'm like, sad? I'm the happiest man in Wellington. <laughs> I'm going to get a little buzz and, a, and, a, and something to eat tonight. But the, you know, I had a barn full of horses, no money in my pocket, and somebody offers me 50 bucks back in 1988. Well, 50 bucks is to buy another bag of grain for the horses. So anyway. I looked at it and I said, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to get in a fight. That's your fight, not mine. And it looks pretty accurate to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I was making fun of the foreign people and the mm-hmm. lifestyles. And it's basically all speculation. So they wrote, asked me, I'd write this article. And I turned it around and, and it made fun of a guy whose son died of a drug overdose. They said, how many of these people are druggies? They said, this kid's son died in a drug overdose on the polo field, which wasn't true. I mean, he died in it. I don't know the details, but it wasn't on the polo field. And I said, you know what? You don't say that. It took some. If you got that, you don't talk about kids. That, and he, it was a guy that had built Palm Beach Polo. And I said, yeah, I'll write it. So I wrote this article, and it was kind of like 10 reasons why the guy's name was Bob Markey, doesn't like horse people. And it was like number 10, 
His wife came home humming the tune to La Bamba at 2 a.m. <laughs> Number nine, Billy Ovisacker stole his girlfriend in high school. It just went on like that. I was trying to make it funny. Yeah. And, and then I got a full-time gig of writing for those people. And then some other lady in a bigger magazine said, well, we want you to write for us. And then I told the other one she was offering me double. So she paid <laughs> me double. And then another woman got involved, and they didn't get along, so they paid me double. So, And then I said, all right because I'm doing wise guy stuff, I said, I'm going to pledge all this money to charity. And I'm going to tell you how karma works. I was in Sheridan, Wyoming. I had no money. Teeth had worn out. It's July. I'm out of work. I'm still got a little bit of money riding, but I'm barely making it. And I got a check for 600 bucks from the magazine for like four articles. And I always pledge that money to like, I might give it to the American Indian College Fund. I might give it to the, you know, homeless, the orphan. I'm just, it's kind of cool to be able to have a check because it wasn't my main job. It was bonus. And I thought that keeps karma good for me. And you try and do something for the community. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hope local people here do when they move in is try and get involved in the community, do something for the community positive. But anyway, I had that check for 600 bucks, and I, whenever you're doing something wrong, you always try and justify it. You're like, you know what? If I go under, everybody goes under. Like, if right. I, you know, and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, nope. I took that 600 bucks right to the Salvation Army, signed it over. The next day, Martin McCarty, Archie's son, who runs the Flying H, called me, and he said, hey, Ski wants to talk to you and have lunch. He sat down, and he said, I just had dinner with B. Buff and Bob Tate. Bob's 85, B's 92. B's still riding horses at 92. And he said, they got a lot of history between them. And if if somebody doesn't write that down, it's going to be lost. So if we paid you to get their history, and we'll pay your expenses, and, and, I, and I'll have my man come in next Tuesday and discuss your salary, would you be in And we'll publish the book. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> like I, I I was like, sure. And so now I got till Tuesday to figure out how I can screw this deal up. <laughs> and I'm horrified because all of a sudden I'm going to have a book come out if it's any good or not. And I was terrified because I'm writing about people's families. And so he gave me no parameters. I took it back to the Indians because they kind of, and there's nothing in common but he had read the polo articles, and I always I like history. My dad was a big historian. He would drag me to battlefields and stuff. Yeah. So Ski said, I know you like history, and I know you like to write. That's how my writing thing came. But like the next day after I gave that check to the Salvation Army, I got a deal that that was June of 2000, and I still got it. And I've, I've got three books out, and I'm writing. I'm almost done with the next one, which is really cool piece of American history. And it just makes, but that's how I got. And 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 yeah. uh, so let's, let's you talk can't about tell that. me that that money I gave the Salvation Army doesn't have karma. That I got a deal that helped me survive all these years. There's, there's a God makes immutable rules. Absolutely. And somebody once said, "We never." How do you put it? We never, you don't break God's laws; you only confirm yes. them. Yeah, you don't break God's laws; you only confirm them. Absolutely. And, and I think that. Very true, and you're obviously evidence of that. So you said three books. The first one we discussed a little bit, Where Rivers Run North. Uh, the next one, wasn't that the picture book? Yep, coffee table book. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then they came out, and I think the last time we had much opportunity to talk, you were still working on this book, was Wing Spur. And it's the beginning, as you said, of a history. Go into that a little bit and tell us about the new book as well. This is a book about, uh, they're great. I had no idea how much Ski Johnson's, his grandmother was an amazing woman. And she was hiring historians to get their family history that goes back on the border of Scotland. It turns out William Wallace was partly raised by the Johnson clans, and I had to learn about the clans of Scotland. Now, briefly, the Scots are wild people. Jim Webb, who ran for president, when he wrote a, a, a book about the Americans from Scotland called Born Fighting. It's a great book. It goes into even Reagan and, and, and generals and General Grant, and they all go back to the Scotland. And, and so, um, and I mean, uh, Civil War, American Revolution, the, the history of Scotland. So I went back, I took the Johnston clan, which they're on bridges, there's rocks that are with their clan. They were thieves, horse and cattle thieves that lived on the border of Scotland over Hadrian's Wall. Years ago when the, when the Normans, when the Romans took over England, they took over the whole country. When they went north to get Scotland, that army disappeared. They never came out again. So those Scots were, and so they said, okay, before we lose another regiment, let's just build a wall. And so they built this nine-foot wall made just to keep them up there. And they've, they've been a very independent-minded people. And so what happened was you have these people that are at odds with England. So they would sneak at night through the wall and steal cattle and horses. Well, because there's two kings, the king of England, they're like, okay, just steal from the... They bred this band of outlaw raiders. And the, the book is about the revolution under William Wallace and then Robert the Bruce. Bruce, yes. And then the book ends right when that clan... So when the king of Scotland, it's the only way they could have stopped it, became king of England. Mm-hmm. He's like, what are we going to do with these guys now? Not like, we got we can't have them stealing from us. And so they said, well, let's just hang them all. And they said, you will never catch those guys. So they go, all right, well, let's give them free land in Ireland, so we don't, <laughs> which is what they did, which they're always apt to fight. They're always ready. They're industrious people. They gave them land on the troublemakers. They didn't bother to tell them that the land belonged to some Irish people. So they went over there and fought in the king's interest, as long as they left them alone. And then once they got Ireland settled, well, of course, they started the trouble in Northern Ireland. They tightened up the grips on them, said, okay, by now the land you're paying 15 cents an acre to rent, it's $15,000 an acre. So William Penn had bailed King Charles out of debt and he gave him this place called Pennsylvania. And he was the king. He was kind of above the king because he was richer than the king. He said, okay, just do whatever you want with Pennsylvania. So William Penn said, hey, I love the Indians. I love the Quakers. I love the Presbyterians. Back then, the Presbyterians were outlaws. You were either in the Church of England or you are in the Catholic Church, or you got thrown out, or you couldn't own a home. You couldn't get married. So these Scots aren't going to take that. They went to America and settled in the hills. They backed King William 
in Northern Ireland originally when they went to Ireland. And I just found this out. So there was King James and, well, there was William and Mary were the mm-hmm. Presbyterian Protestant and they, then the Catholics tried to raise their head again and uh, under King James, and he was going to try and overthrow them. Well, those border clans fought for William and Mary. And when they got to America, they called them Billies, and they settled as far back away from rule as they could in the hills, and that's where the t- they called them Billies because they, prom- they stood up for King William. They called them Hillbillies. That's yeah. where it came from. I never knew that. It is cool. And also when they fought in battle, to, to the, I never knew they didn't get along with the Highlanders. The Highlanders settled in the Carolinas, where I'm from, and I, I played football against a team called the Fighting Scots. But there was battles in the American Revolution where lowland Scots fought highland Scots, which broadswords don't do well against Pennsylvania rifles. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's where I started my writing, and that's, that's what the last book was about. The end of the book is the guys getting on the boat going to America. And this next book, which is called American Annandale, is the same family, and they get caught right in the middle of the French and Indian War. Ben Franklin, George Washington, and you can see what a brilliant guy Franklin was. Amazing guy. And he was feeling out the Brits, and they had so much freedom in Pennsylvania because of they couldn't really rule Pennsylvania because the Penn family. But eventually they sent army in to fight the French and the the, the border clans got caught up in it because they were the only ones to survive because they gave they gave the tribes free guns and powder and said just go kill every settler on the and they'd be they'd been living in peace with the Indians for for eighty years and then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you got eighty teenagers outside your door it's like uh oh it didn't the thousands got slaughtered during the French and Indian War and the the Scots decided. They had hounds anyway for hunting, and that's what saved them. I'm definitely going to have to <clears throat> read that. And it's interesting that you get in that Pennsylvania area. There were pendergraphs there. They came out of North Carolina, migrated up to there. And I have a copy of a deed where the land between the three rivers or, was sold to a pendergraph. Really? And <clears throat> Were Fort Pitt and Fort Duquesne. Yeah, which is now a Three River Stadium is yeah, there. Pittsburgh, yeah. Yeah. We also have a portion of his diary that I'll be glad to share with you. You might. Were you Germans or Scots? Irish. We were Irish. actually um, Scots the, Irish. The Prendergast family came as Norman invaders into Ireland in 1170 with Strongbow. Okay. And they kind of defected and became a part of the Irish culture. Sure. Yeah, the Prendergast family. And then they started migrating over here into Virginia and the Carolinas and worked their way ultimately in 1878 to Wyoming. Wow. So there's probably some crossover thing. Well, nobody wanted them around, so they had to keep moving. (laughs) Well, somebody wanted you around. They just elected you. (laughs) (laughs) They don't know all those stories yet. (laughs) Well, it takes a long time to live that kind of thing down. Yes. Yes. So what's what's next for you? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the book. Um, you're getting pretty old to be oh, doing boy. doing house <laughs> dentistry. I I did want to throw one other thing out too because I follow you on Facebook a little bit, and I always see pictures of you 
working with kids, coaching a little bit of that part of your life, if you would. Yeah. Um, my dad coached little league baseball till he was 85 because someone, they didn't have one. And I, I think he started, but my dad was one of these people that he said, you have to give something back to your community. And that was easy. And I was running the Bighorn Polo Club at the time, so I had a free polo school for like 20 years. And so it was free. I wanted local people that owned a horse, ranchers, barrel racers. You didn't have to pay anything. And then what was amazing about that, and I told the polo club, you can't charge these people anything. And people started throwing money at me. So I said, I don't want to handle any money. So I went to the Polo Training Foundation, which is some kind of five, and I said, can I just write receipts for – and so it went very well. But that's – it's it's it was fun. I had a rodeo for eight years, which was a extreme rodeo. And where I was at, I had the opportunity to do something, which I had that. And when I mm-hmm. stopped running polo, I didn't have that anymore. But You'd I had, call that karma, I suspect. And then I coached other people's kids in uh, – in football, people that couldn't coach they because they knew I played football and they, I liked it, and so I would coach their kids. But you know, and, and that's that's fun. It's great working with the kids, but my gosh, are the parents getting crazy? And I have so much respect for these coaches. Sheridan coaches are great. Bighorn, they're friends of mine, and you know, ninety percent of their aggravation always comes from people that think they're. Oh yeah. You know, but it's fun. It's fun. The kid, and it's so great to see them grow up, and they get. They get excited, and when they come back to you and they say, you said I was going to play for Sheridan one day, and I'm playing for Sheridan, you know, and then, you know, and to see people like, uh, you know, like those those Ryan kids, I knew them all, and I'm friends with their parents, and they their kids have all grown up and been great athletes, and I still, and the one kid's, the youngest one, she was like the best player in the league as a first grader girl, <laughs> like the whole, and, and She's playing in Europe now. And then I have other friends that are going off to college. And I just called some of my friends played for uh, – my son played with Lodgegrass. And I just called a couple of those kids because I know how homesick you get in college your first year. And sure enough, you know, I'm just saying, hey, man, this is tough. Don't give up, you know. But it, that it's so much fun. You just do what you can where you are. And that's what I'm – I try to put something back in the community. It's, it's really nice to hear you say that and to – to be able to witness some of these things that you've done because we go back 40 years. Yeah. We were all different. You know about all the bad stuff I've done. (laughs) Well, there's one story I'm going to ask you to relate and it has to do with basically an Indian raid on the girl's cabin. Uh, well, that's a whole not. (laughs) (laughs) You can't talk about that on the radio. You don't have to say any names. (laughs) I think what you're saying is we had a deal where we used to raid the dinner hall, if this is what you're talking about, and we dressed up in, like, jock straps and washcloths and painted our bodies and had tail hair and bandanas, and we all decided to ride bareback, which is – one of the things I found out in where the rivers run north is warriors didn't ride bareback. But I think the artists came by, and then after the reservation, and these people, poor people were so poor, nobody had a saddle. So they just assumed that warriors and, and Indians rode, the tribes rode bareback, which wasn't true. They rode in saddles, but 
since we were not the most brightest light in the sky, <laughs> we all jumped on these horses bareback and then rode all the paints, which are usually the worst horses. So we're <laughs> flying through on gravel roads, and we we decided we'd really organize it. If this is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, you're on the right track. We had people that weren't on, like, go outside while they were eating dinner and beat on drums like they were five-gallon buckets. <laughs> and get them, And then we ran in and grabbed this kid who was in on it from the dinner table. He had a little blonde hair, and we had some blonde tail hair, and we dipped it in red paint. So we yanked them out and took them, and then we, we had another group on horses because we knew the guy that owned the ranch, Archie McCarty, would run for his cabin, get his pistol, and shoot under our horse's legs and get us bucked off. Well, we went ahead, went into his cabin through the window, locked him out of his own house. <laughs> we, we, like, planned this through. But the bad part was... <laughs> Most of it. <laughs> the bad part was we got to run and bareback on that gravel road, and, and I collided with Alan Bard, and he was riding a mule, and I was riding this big 17-hand horse. And, man, we got thrown down, and we're basically naked on a hard gravel road. And we had gravel rash all over us. But is that what you're talking about? Yeah. But we told the woman she'd never get her kid back unless she put two cases of beer at the foot of the bunkhouse. <laughs> and we even took that little blonde hair with the, with the red paint on it and said, here's his scalp. <laughs> And yeah, he was he was living large because little kids love to go in the bunkhouse because there was such interesting reading material in there. <laughs> there was a whole dresser full, <laughs> as I remember. We got sent up that spring. We got sent up there early in the spring just to be there and kind of watch over the place. And basically, I had to have something to do. So Archie says, well, you can wash all the saddles. So I cleaned, I don't know, what did we have, 60, 80 saddles oh, at or least, more? Yeah, at least, yeah, So I spent some time doing that. And then as the snow would melt off, we'd start clearing stuff up. And then we got, everybody got a rake. Oh, my God. And you remember? <laughs> I did it the first year, and then I was smart enough not to come up after That's that. That's right. If you got up there early, you it had to never rake. wanted to go up there early. There was, what, maybe four or five acres of the main area. But we basically had to rake all the pine needles up to control the fire hazard. And there would be a half dozen of us that spent like I remember two that. weeks. I did it my first year, yeah. As soon as the snow melt or cut poles. Yeah. He'd get a pole permit. Yeah. And we had to cut poles. You remember they had an old red Dodge truck, mm -hmm. no windshield, no back window. <laughs> and that's how we carried the poles. We'd lay them across <laughs> the bed of the truck and all the way across the hood. And I could tell you a story too, but I won't about how that truck lost the windshield and the rear window uh -oh. but involved a little bit of alcohol and involved the park reservoir dam more oh. on, if we get together another time we'll tell some well teepee i started out at teepee right and that was even worse i mean they had they would run those horses like crazy and it was a lot of fun and it was bigger and then they had a group of young girls that would come out without their parents, and they were called queens, and they charged them double. And 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 some of these girls were very good horsemen. Some of these girls were one step out of going to jail for what they'd done back east, and their parents would send them, and they had a, a chaperone, and one girl would take turns getting her, she liked to drink, 
her job was to drink with her after dinner, and then she was out lights out by eight o'clock. And those girls, they got every good cowboy in the country working there because <laughs> I guess you could describe them as fun, but there was just trouble and drama. And I was a little boy, and the things that I saw as a 13-year-old was uh, probably uh, probably stories way ahead of my told. time. <laughs> yeah. Living in a bunkhouse with twenty-one-year-old at Tommy. So my Alder. mother, my mother worked up there as a babysitter, and this would have been back in the fifties. Okay. And I'm trying to think of his name. He was Secretary of State for a while. Anyway, doesn't matter. But now I'm going to have to go ask her more questions. Wasn't Henry Kissinger? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, it wasn't. Cyrus Vance. It was Cyrus Vance. Oh, okay. She, All baby, right. she babysat his kids. Anyway, it's been fun chatting with you. Um, we'll, well have to have Thanks for having back. me. And yeah. congratulations on your election. Thank you. That's big news. Thank you. I, I did, I will say that on the front page of the Sheridan Press, above the fold was a big banner that said, Hageman defeats Cheney. And right above that was an article that said, Pendergraft wins. And Congratulations. that was kind of a, a proud day. But, sure. But at any rate, we'll have you back next time. Bring the guitar. Well, thanks. I sure will. All right. Thanks. <laughs>